At the end of the day, the big picture is our current food paradigm really benefits corporations, it benefits big agriculture, even the subsidizing, the, the government subsidizing um, and, and the lobbyists, like it's very problematic. But if we can, you know, move some of these, this production down to a, a local level and make sure that farmers are empowered and they have the tools to make these transitions of food production, I think that's very important. What are some of the broader implications of the current state of global public health at this troubled and fascinating time in history? And let's include environmental determinants of health, food systems, and food and nutrient security in that question. We're going to talk all about it with Columbia University MPH candidate, professional podcaster, and Rockefeller Foundation Global Food Portfolio Summer Associate Kat Morgan, right here on episode 434 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is about you and your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system writ large. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of health, healthcare, nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, you can leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts or also on Google, Amazon, or Spotify, or just share the show from wherever you happen to listen, any old app where you're doing that listening. And if you want to become a patron at patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith, you can pledge as little as $2 a month to help support the show. I appreciate you all so much, no matter what you want to do to be here, to listen, to share, to support, to be a patron, whatever you do, I love that you're doing it. The show notes, of course, will be over at nursekeith.com. They'll also be on any app where you happen to be listening and you can share those with others, of course. And as I said just moments ago, we're here with Kat Morgan. She is a MPH candidate at Columbia University and so much more. And Kat, I've been listening to your two podcasts. I just listened to a couple episodes over the last day or so, and there's so much to talk about. And where I'd really like to start is, let's start with the kind of like big picture and then we'll drill down. So at this point in your career, being at Columbia, being deeply steeped in the public health world and the food security world, all that stuff that you're thinking about, what's what are some of the broader things that you're considering right now in your studies or your personal work about where we are with public health here and around the world? Like what's on your mind? Oh, I think that's a wonderful question. And I could I could speak to that question alone for two days. Okay, let's start. <laughs> if you let me. Let's but go yeah, for let's it. Start. So, you know, thinking about global health, public health, from the international level to the local level, something that's very much at the forefront of my mind is food production and food systems. Um, so I'm a, I'm a food systems professional. I, I study it. I work it. I live it. I love to eat. Uh, so food is kind of my purview to life and colors everything I think about. Um, something that I'm 
quite interested in at the moment professionally is how climate change um, and, and also just the ways that we produce our food, our agricultural management practices, how does that affect the biochemical composition or the nutrient density of our food? And that's something, that's a question that we, we don't have a straightforward answer to. Um, and it depends quite a bit on the environment and the conditions where food is grown, but has really important implications for public health and for global health, especially moving forward when we think about building a climate resilient um, and, and nutrient secure future. And when I say nutrient security, I, I do want to have a little caveat as well. I think for quite a long time in the fields of nursing and medicine and public health, we really relied on the term food security. It's still being used at, like at an international scale, but a lot of actors within food systems advocacy and justice work are now calling for a shift in some of the terminology we use from food security to nutrient security. Uh, and so that's also another thing that relates to, to this idea of food composition, but also just so many more other intricate factors in the food system. Um, how do we you know, ensure that our population has access to highly nutritious food that is affordable and that is accessible? Because oftentimes uh, a family, for example, might be food secure in the sense that they have access to prepackaged or fast foods that are relatively affordable, um, easy to access. But these foods aren't necessarily health promoting for people or for our planet. Um, and so I think, you know, moving forward, one of the big driving questions that I am interested in tackling in public health and environmental health is how can we change our global food systems paradigm to produce food that is healthy for people, good for our planet, that's it, affordable and accessible. Um, and there's no clear answer to that because our food systems are so complicated and there are many large actors that have you know, financial incentives. Um, but it's an interesting question and it also relates to healthcare in the sense that if people have access to nutritious and healthy food, um, you know, we might have lower rates of cardiovascular disease, of diabetes, non-communicable disease, uh, which we talk about is, is such a growing burden. Um, and we know that the U.S. spends more money on healthcare than anything else. So what might be a, you know, a seemingly simple fix to that is ensuring that people have access to good food. So that was my long rambling answer, um, but hopefully that 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 answers your question. I don't think that's rambling at all. I think that's actually pretty spot on. Um, <laughs> in your recent interview on one of your two podcasts, your your podcast O Crop, which is about sustainability and food and et cetera, and food security, food sovereignty, you interviewed Mark Bittman, who's a New York Times columnist and um, best-selling author um, and it's an amazing interview it's just like 29 minutes long but it's it's action-packed for me and you know he was talking about this issue with you and there's there's so much to unpack around nutrient density he was talking about monocrop culture you know 
corn and soybeans pretty much being what so many farmers are growing because that's what the government's willing to subsidize. And, you know, he was saying like growing oats is a radical act at this point, the 21st century. And, you know, he made some great points, as did you. And it, it brings me to the United Nations 17 Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, which, you know, goal two is like ending hunger and achieving food security and improved nutrition. So, they still say food security, but when they say improve nutrition and promote sustainable agriculture, then we know that they're looking at nutrient density, not just food security. And for nurses out there, most of my listeners are nurses. You know, if we're thinking about cardiovascular disease and obesity and diabetes, et cetera, and even if you look at like immune disorders and cancer and all these other things, you know. If our topsoil is eroded, if the, you know, the nutrient makeup of our food isn't what it used to be, you know, it's like I've heard older people, you know, people in their 80s and 90s, for instance, be like, what's all this talk about organic these days? Why do I have to buy organic? And I've had conversations with a few older people I know. And I'm like, well, when you were growing up in the 20s and 30s, we didn't have to talk about organic because everything was. It's like it was before World War II. <laughs> so we didn't have all these, you know, weed killers and all this stuff that people use. So anyway, that's my long ramble right now. So when it, when it comes to like food sovereignty and the sense of justice, because it's really like social justice, people's access to food. Absolutely. What are what are people talking about in your circles when it comes to like, how do we make sure people have access? What, like, how does, how does change come about? Where do we, where do we attack this problem? I think that is a wonderful question. And I'm going to, I'm going to begin my answer kind of from a global scale. And then maybe as I talk, zoom into more of um, like a national and, and local purview of what's going on in the U.S. But I think across the board, when we think of food system sovereignty and sustainability, it's the idea of people having um, sovereignty over what food they produce, having access to land, um, and then you know having the option to forego the reliance on external inputs and and i'm going to build on what you were just saying that that was a wonderful synthesis of you know like what is organic what is regenerative what is agroecology all of these kind of what i would say politically burdened labels of, of mm -hmm. ways that we produce food all of them are trying to get at this idea that they are not monocropped and what that means is is after world war ii um there was a surplus of nitrogen that had been originally used to make bombs and all of a sudden scientists were trying to figure out how do we how do we use all of this excess hmm. stuff and they figured out okay we can use this nitrogen to make fertilizer inputs and what's really interesting is now a lot of academicians are saying these these fertilizer inputs are part of what is called the green revolution and it was this initiative to try to um exponentially increase the amount of food grown to immediately address starvation 
Mm. Right. And so all of a sudden we had all of these, this corn and wheat and rice, things that we call cereal crops in my world, not cereal, like special K, but, but cereal crops as in like the type of crop that they are. Um, but we, we know now kind of with our hindsight is 2020, because we can look back and kind of think about this whole externalization of farming to become reliant on pesticides and specifically improved seeds and chemical inputs. And, you know, I'm not, I'm certainly not going to, to sit here and, and yeah, harp on some of these practices that I know have saved millions of lives, but now we're kind of at this state where it doesn't really make sense to be monocropping and to be producing the food that we are um, and the way that we're producing it, because it is incredibly horrible for the environment in low middle income countries, particularly in the global South. A lot of these big agricultural companies um, create this like a farmer reliance on these very expensive inputs. And the more fertilizer you use, the more or fertilizer you have to use um, be- and pesticides that you have to use because, you know, the pests become more resilient to the pesticides, the more you spray them mm-hmm. and the more inputs that you put in your soil, the more the soil kind of loses its, its natural uh, resiliency and, and microbiome, you know, soil is kind of a living thing and we don't always talk about that. So I think, you know, to kind of circle us back to home with all of this context, a lot of food sovereignty, in my opinion, is and and many people in this in the spheres that I'm talking to, um, is really democratizing and prioritizing indigenous and marginalized groups who have some some of what we would call agroecological production practices. You know, long held um, ways of producing food that are locally relevant that are accessible, that are culturally relevant foods. Um, and it, so I think that's quite important. And I think that, you know, another part of food sovereignty is, you know, considering climate change and climate resilience, um, because we know that the countries who contribute the most to global emissions are going to feel the least impacts of climate change. Whereas many smallholder farmers in the global south are already seeing, you know, the effects of soil desertification um, and and extreme weather events. So it's almost this double burden of big agriculture putting these external pressures on these farmers to produce in ways that aren't culturally relevant or ecologically sound and healthy. Um, but then there's also the idea of we need to prioritize the voices of the people who have been and will continue to be disproportionately impacted by negatively, disproportionately negatively impacted by our food system. And it's a difficult question to answer because, you know, you have to put on your systems thinking hat and really zoom out. And then once you zoom out to that point, you know, sometimes there's so many actors and so many different um you know ways of thinking about this problem that it's easy to get lost in the weeds because Mm. food is it's part of everything that we do um so i I, 
I don't have a, a crisp and clear answer of like what a solution could be, but I certainly do believe that what I just talked about is some of these historical legacies are a huge problem. And moving forward, we need to figure out ways to make our food produced locally, sustainably, in a culturally relevant way that really supports farmers. Because mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the big picture is our current food paradigm really benefits corporations. It benefits big agriculture, even the subsidizing, the, the government subsidizing um, and, and the lobbyists. Like, it's very problematic. But if we can you know, move some of these, this production down to a, a local level and make sure that farmers are empowered and they have the tools to make these transitions of food production... I think that's very important. So I think it is important. And I think, you know, in the nursing world, at least, I think about how when we talk about public health, you know, people think about COVID and they think about mm-hmm. vaccinations and they think about TB. I, I work in TB these days. And those are great. I mean, those are super important. But I think this whole notion of, you know, in nursing, we also talk about the social determinants of health, but you brought into the conversation when you and I talked originally some weeks ago, environmental determinants of health, which needs to be part of the conversation. And there's a, there's a subset of nursing, like the, the American, um, the association of nurses for, um, um, healthy environments, the ANHE. So there are subsets of nurses who are thinking about these things. And that's why I wanted to bring you here to talk about this. And it just, it's frustrating in that in the, in the current political climate, and we could talk about that for hours too. Yeah. And like you said, the corporatization of farming, you know, because we have the corporatization of hospice, we have the corporatization of healthcare, we have the corporatization of home health, and then we can look at farming and all these other aspects of this society we live in. It's so hard to know where to go, like as a clinician, where do I turn to talk about my patients about these things? And how do I talk about you know, food in a way that makes sense to them? You know, here in northern New Mexico, we have we have 16 Native American Indian pueblos or reservations. And, you know, here, you know, in that particular culture, growing the three sisters, the three crops that are called the three sisters, squash, beans, and corn is a big thing. I mean, that's like part of the culture. And it also nutritionally makes enormous amounts of sense and you can grow those things here in the high desert. So there are practices, but when when we feel like we're up against political, social, and other forces that push back against even the smallest incremental changes we want to make, I feel like that's where we can feel as like healthcare professionals feel hung up and we feel like we're ineffectual, right? It's disempowering. It's disempowering, right? So people like you who are studying this at this deeper, more granular level, um, are there, do you feel 
do you feel hopeful that that change is in the offing? Like there's there's room for change? I do. Yeah? Tell me more about that. Is this perhaps I'm naive? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, I think that if if there is a will, there is a way. And mm-hmm. you know, whether it is we change the way that we produce food um, as climate adaptation because we, or we, you know, our soils get to the point where there's really not a lot of remediation and we have to figure out, you know, alternative practices. I hope we don't get to that point. Right. I hope that the people working on the front lines can start, you know, leveraging change, whether it's working in policy, whether it's doing the scientific research, whether you're a healthcare practitioner and, you know, you're a nurse communicating to a patient about using SNAP, for example, government funding to access produce or talking about healthy eating, you know, as a way to prevent disease. I think one of the beneficial things about food systems, despite the fact that it makes them so tricky to study, is that they touch pretty much all aspects of our lives. So like if you want funding for a food systems intervention, you know, you go to the USDA and you you write a grant saying that, you know, helping our healthcare or helping people who are helping a low resource community access produce, for example, will improve their health outcomes um, by X amount. Like we can quantify or we can reduce healthcare costs by X amount. Even or or for example, we talk about greenwashing. Um, which is the idea where corporations who don't necessarily have a good impact on the environment uh, almost market themselves or frame themselves in a way to where it, it looks as if they're doing you know good climate friendly work, um, and so that oftentimes that's very problematic. Um, but then there are also people who talk about leveraging corporate dollars, right, to to do some of this change making whether it's with corporate philanthropy. Um, And then there's also, and I'm not, you know, I'm speaking about, you know, what people are talking about. These are not my personal opinions um, per se, but there's also people who talk about like on on the individual level, do I actually make a difference? Mm -hmm. Like, is it worth it for me to recycle? Is it worth it for me to buy sustainably made clothing? Do I make a difference? And I, you know, I've looked at some academic papers. I've looked at some of the research and it seems like for the most part, people say, you know, no, on the individual level, you don't make a difference. And, you know, trying to position culpability on the individual is kind of a technique used by corporations to offset blame, right? Um, and it's disempowering, like you were saying, or like we were both saying earlier. Um, but, but I personally think that um, I believe in hope. And I believe that if enough people believe something can happen, it might. <laughs> mm-hmm. And maybe that's what I need to to grab onto working in this field, because oftentimes it does feel very siloed. It feels very hopeless and fractured. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I want a climate resilient future. I would love to, you know, someday have a child that can sit under a green tree, under a blue sky, you know, and enjoy our planet as I've done and generations before us have done. Um, so I, 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 I hope, and I believe. <laughs> That's great. 
that's a great way to end the, the first half of our conversation. And when we come back from the break, I'd like to continue that particular conversation and also talk about some other issues around health disparities. Um, I'd like to touch on the pandemic a little bit because you have a podcast about the pandemic as well and anything else that crosses our minds. So we'll be right back. Stay with us for the second half of this episode of the Nurse Keith Show with Kat Morgan, Columbia University MPH candidate and podcaster from OCROP podcast miniseries and Navigating the Pandemic, the podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Kat Morgan. And Kat, right before the break, we were talking about hope. And I was just reading an email from a local community farm here in Santa Fe. It's called Reunity Resources. And it's been a community-based agriculture farm for decades. And the person who left the land after he died made sure in the deed that it always is involved with local food production, which is really cool. And I was reading about all the things they're doing there and including growing food sustainably and creating amazing soil that they share with the wider community. And are these sorts of grassroots efforts, community-supported agriculture, all these sorts of things that happen around our communities, farmers markets, is this, is that one area where we as consumers can basically like shop with our feet? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think when possible, when it's affordable and, you know, accessible at the community level, Purchasing locally is a wonderful way to get integrated into the local food systems. I know that in many parts of the United States, possibly on the global context as well, you know, there, there are things called community-supported agriculture boxes. And, and often these have sliding income scales. So if you you hit a certain income bracket, and it's the honor system, but you know, you trust that with this kind of thing, people will be honest. Um so if you're at the lower end of this sliding income bracket, you're able to get uh, less expensive, fresh produce. Sometimes these are delivered directly to the consumer. Sometimes they're local pickup, but they're a really great way to support local farmers um, and sustainable and nutritious food production. So I definitely think that that's a great route. Um, and I also think too that even just having exposure to farms, you know, if you don't have the income or the interest in something like a CSA, go to a farmer's market and eat, like meet, introduce yourself to a carrot, meet some lettuce, you know, like how many times do you see, you know, fresh produce maybe, or, or go to the farm itself and harvest something just the experience of relating to the earth, relating to, to the ground and, and, you know, picking something that you then get to eat. You know, maybe I'm a little bit nerdy because this is what I do, but I think mm. it's a real beautiful experience and that many people are disarticulated with that, with what it means to produce food, what a carrot looks like when it's not in a grocery store. Um, 
So I think it's a really great educational aspect of food systems, change making, and also supporting human and planetary health. That's a great point. And you know, it's really ironic and interesting. I'm just thinking about this as you were talking about it and point well taken. So I grew up in New Jersey, the garden state, right? And when people think of New Jersey, they think of the New Jersey Turnpike and the places where they drive through on the way to New York. You know, however, it's actually a very verdant state and there's a lot of farming and always was back when I was a kid. However, based on my parents' lifestyle choices living in the suburbs, even though there were farms nearby, I literally, really literally, like never knew what lettuce looked like coming out of the ground until I was an adult. And I like went to a farm myself. So I had never seen a garden or I'd never seen things growing in the ground. I really hadn't until I was a young adult. And I made it a, a effort to go out and see what this was all about. So you're, you're preaching to the choir here. Like I grew up in that way. And this was yeah. years ago. So it's it's fascinating to me that so many of us are what you just said, um, disarticulated from the notion of like where food even comes from. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask you about the generation of people who are working in public health now or coming into public health now. So mm -hmm. your recent episode on your podcast, um, Navigating the Pandemic, which is a great podcast and is an episode that came out in late June. And on it, you're having a conversation with two colleagues, a male and female colleague, each of whom are, I think, a little bit ahead of you in the, the programs or they've already graduated. But you're all, I think, in your 20s or maybe 30s. And what, what do you see in terms of your generation's interest in these issues? And how galvanized do you feel like that group of people are to like really dig deep and like dive as deeply into these public health issues as possible? Is that where some of your hope comes from, perhaps? I I think that's a wonderful question. And actually, like it's helping me be more reflective because I, I think it might be, mm -hmm. actually. I, I do believe that, you know, people talk about the pros and cons of our globalized world and having the internet and having social media. Um, but I, I do think that in my field of public health and then just change, change food systems change making right like i think that there are tools that can be leveraged now and i think that there are communication ways ways of communicating ways of accessing information that's unlike ever before and so i think you know in some ways the pros of that are we have a highly passionate, highly educated and communicative young public health workforce. But I think, you know, the con to that is because we have such a spread of information, there's also misinformation and disinformation, which we saw so much during COVID, during peak COVID-19 mm -hmm. um, with conspiracy theories about 
vaccinations, um, with mis with mistrust of the government by BIPOC communities, which is understandable given you know our long and complicated history of, of ec- medical exploitation. Ex- um, absolutely. Right, and so it's like yes, I, I think that we have just this galvanized and passionate and ready to generation that's ready to tackle the issues and i think it's also quite close to home for many of us because like we grew up in a generation where whether or not people believed it climate change has always been very much at the forefront of of many of our lives so the idea of by the time by 2050 so for example in 2050 i will be 50 years old Will our food systems be robust? Like, what will the world look like? Um, hopefully, it, it it's lush and nourishing and wonderful, and all of the efforts of this public health workforce, <laughs> you know, have succeeded. Um, but I do think that there's a little bit of perhaps like trepidation and fear about the future because of because of the past. And when we talk about environmental justice, we think about like intergenerational effects, right? So. What what did past generations do that led us to our current paradigm? And what can we do now to hopefully pave the way for a brighter future? Um, and I know there's a, an, an, an indigenous ontological idea, I believe from the Haudenosaunee peoples in um, New York. And it's the idea of the seventh generation principle. So mm-hmm. like what you do now will affect people seven generations down the line. Um, I'm not indigenous, but I, I think it's a, a a driving force and a principle that I wish was incorporated more into, you know, some of our public health mindsets, some of our, um, you know, structural societal change making, even, even nursing, even, you know, from, I don't know if you talk about epigenetics on this podcast ever, but, you know, it's the idea that our 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 genome like the way that it's read can be altered by some of these environmental factors so this is me kind of getting off topic and rambling no, a little great. bit no, it's I, I think principles like that are are very important to hold on to hope and and focus our um this generation to to keep on keeping on despite some of our fears mm-hmm. yeah uh, we haven't talked about epigenetics on this show so i'm glad you brought that into it and I mean, consciousness raising is important, right? That's why you have a podcast, you have two podcasts, I have a podcast. A lot of people are doing all sorts of work out in the world in terms of increasing people's awareness, because you have to start with awareness, like that community farm I told you about here in Santa Fe, right? Or I think about we have an amazing farmer's market here and we have the Santa Fe Farmers Market Institute and they have a seed bank. So farmers can go there for education, they can share information, they share seeds, you know. So because we all know there's problems with seeds and, you know, um, genetically modified seeds, all that sort of thing. So there's all sorts of levels and layers at which these things happen. But then I think about like, okay. Let's go there. Let's, I think about a hospital, right? I'm hospitalized for surgery or whatever. And food comes to my room three times a day. And it's like, generally speaking, generally speaking, it is the deadest, most nutrient 
um, it's like a nutrient desert. Neon green jello. Yeah, yeah. And you, you have this like, not nutrient-packed meal, but you have this like nutrient-deprived meal. So it's like, we talk about healthcare and and the, the it's just such, um, I don't even know how to say it. It's just there... There are these things about healthcare in the United States, for instance, where we spend so much money. We have, I mean, we're not even in the top 10 in terms of outcomes and longevity. I don't even know if we're in the top 20, but we're at the top in terms of how much we spend per capita. So it's like, there's so many things that cause cognitive dissonance in the world, whether it's healthcare, environment, food security, nutrient security, climate change. So, I mean, public health, I mean, can you name anything for me that actually isn't related to public health? Is there anything <laughs> that's not? No, I mean, not that, I mean, because it's it's the health of humans, right? Yeah. It incorporates the, our social, our built environments, our um physical, biological environment, all of these things. Yeah. Like even whether there's sidewalks in a community as part of public health. And Mark Bittman said on your episode that it's, you could change it from public health to public well-being. I think that's what he said. Like you could just call it that. And yeah. so, I mean, that's why I was asking you that rhetorical questions. Like, can we name anything that's not public health? And I think of like those meals that are served in a hospital you know, dead food, you know, that's public health or, or the, you know, the neighborhood where I used to work in Western Massachusetts, where the, the uh, mostly Puerto Rican community where I worked got bisected by a um, big highway during the seventies, yep. cutting neighborhoods off from each other. And the easiest place to go get food was a bodega, right? Yeah. And they had some avocados and they had some plantains, but other than that, it was packaged food, right? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. where where do we turn as healthcare professionals? Where would you say, like, if you were talking to, and you are right now talking to a, a audience of nurses, where does a nurse turn if they want to learn more they want to become informed and they want to be able to like simply and effectively communicate some of these ideas without alienating their patients, right? So where would you go if you were a med surge nurse and you wanted to learn more about these things and just be able to think about it, talk about it, teach about it? My answer is strikingly simple, and it okay. comes from my background as a cultural anthropologist. Oh. Go directly to the source. Talk to your talk to your communities. I think, it, at least in public health and healthcare provision and delivery, oftentimes we get disconnected from the people that we're serving, and we don't understand what sort of barriers we face. Like your example with. Uh, a highway bisecting a neighborhood and having a bodega where you really don't have access to fresh or nutritious foods. That is like an example of structural racism. And a lot of that gerrymandering um, is, was done on purpose. Um, 
and yeah, uh, I don't know if you have like heard about um, any of like the structural racism or the determinants of health or gerrymandering, but redlining is kind mm -hmm. of one of the main ideas of this. So a lot of these structural issues are absolutely purposeful. Um, and I think one of the best ways to understand some of the difficulties that the community is facing and then be able to talk to them about it um, is to have these open, iterative and non-judgmental conversations. You know, ask people what their thought processes are, what they experience in their daily lives, um, because I don't think we can effectively tackle an issue if we don't fully understand it and, and assess it and really empathize and try to understand the problem from the person experiencing it. A lot of our solutions are very prescriptive, very top down. Um, and I do think it's important to, to, to consider things from the top down in the sense of structural racism or gerrymandering or all of these, you know, quite literal um, barriers to health in, in the environment or in the community level or the neighborhood level. Um, yeah, so I think talking with, you know, community-based conversations is really important. Um, and, and also, you know, learning how to do motivational interviewing is really important um, because we know it's, it's an evidence-based approach to behavior change. And oftentimes trainings like that can be free from your, your local or your state public health organization, maybe the hospital that you work at. Um, so yeah, those would be my, my two recommendations. Talk to the people that you're serving and mm. learn about motivational interviewing. Mm, those are great. And I think we can add to that, that there's, there are podcasts, there are journals, there's the nursing organization I mentioned, the AHNE, that's nurses who are, who are very concerned about environmental justice and environmental issues. And you might find in your state nursing organization or any organizations to which you belong, you might find a committee that's related to sustainability or a committee that's related to social justice. And a lot of nursing organizations have um, government relations committees. So if you wanted to get involved with, say, your state nursing association and maybe on lobbying day, you know, get some training or before lobbying day, get some training around how to talk to your state, local or federal legislators about issues around food security, for instance, or nutrient security. And, and Kat, one thing that we like, or I like to communicate to nurses is that if you want to speak to legislators, legislators, yeah. I mean, you might find the odd one who's a nurse or a doctor or a public health official. There are a few nurses in Congress right now, not enough. There's more doctors, but most legislators, you know, they know certain things, but they only learn and know what people come and talk to them about. So mm -hmm. I always say like, if you have a master's in public health, or if you're a registered nurse or you're a physician or a nurse practitioner, tell them what it is you do, because that might pique their curiosity for one. Say, you know, I'm a, I'm a registered voter in your district. I'm a registered nurse or whatever, fill in the blank. And I'd like to talk to you about, right, like the food security in our, in our community. So I feel like 
even though the legislative process can be daunting and we can't we can't solve every problem in the country and the world through legislation but there are things that legislators can do and i think it is kind of up to us as their constituents to educate them if there's something we understand like for instance legislators don't necessarily understand what nurses actually do. So if you can educate them about what you do, they might really understand what your state nurse practice act is really about. Like what is that legislation and how does it affect the nurse with whose boots are on the ground? So anyway, I'm just thinking like there's lots of ways we can be advocates and the legislative level is, you know, it can seem like this huge machine that you can't have effect on, but but if you understand food security or nutrient security and you go talk to a legislator about it, I think it could really open their eyes, couldn't it? I absolutely think so. I would hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in your schooling right now at Columbia, um, what are the things you're focused on? And are you writing, are you working on a, a thesis at this point? And if so, what's the, you know, where's your... Where are you kind of spending most of your time and energy? So my department here is environmental health sciences. I Mm -hmm. also have a certificate, which is kind of like having a minor um, in food systems and public health. So a lot of my my focus right now is on um, environmentally adaptive food production. And one of my specialties is beans. I do a lot of research and a lot of writing on beans, Hmm. um, because they have a lot of agricultural benefits. They're very good for the planet, very nourishing for people. So I do a lot of work, uh, looking at ways to support farmers in bean production. Um, and then I also do research on soil health and, there are there's microbiota there's bacteria in our soil um, that also have really big implications for human health so academically i'm working on a, a paper about soil microbes which doesn't sound very sexy but thinking about you know zooming out and thinking about the large scale uh you know soil is soil is everything soil is is a living um breathing thing that we need to protect and nourish Uh, On a professional level, Mm -hmm. I am working on a scoping review for the Rockefeller Foundation um, jointly also with the Periodic Table of Food Initiative. And I just presented on it, um, presented at a conference about it so that that recording will go live soon on YouTube. But we're really interested in how climate change and the way that you produce food affects biochemical composition. So that's where I've gotten a lot of my background knowledge and and really just passion for this topic because it's something that you know we don't know as much about it as we would like to know uh both on how these factors affect the composition of food but also you know the periodic table of food is trying to standardize some of the ways that we measure what's actually in our food so you know we kind of joke that a lot of our produce has, it's like the dark matter of food. It's thing we don't really know what's in it, but it's, it's healthful and nourishing. And it's important to know these things uh, so that we can measure them and understand that moving forward. So those are two of my, my research areas, beans and um, agriculture for sustainable people and planet. 
and then I have my podcasts. So I stay busy. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's great. And the periodic table of food, I'm going to have to look that up and read a little bit more about that because that's new to me. So that's, that's exciting. And your podcasts are O-Crop, right? Which is your podcast about food production. And that's the one where you, I think episode two, where you, you um, interviewed Mark Bittman. Mm -hmm. And I think you have some new episodes of that in the offing. Right. I do. Yes. Yeah. And then there's navigating the pandemic. And that's part of the um, public health podcasters um, podcast network at publichealthpodcasters.com. And navigating the pandemic, you've just been kind of following the COVID 19 pandemic over the last Mm -hmm. few years, right? And attacking it, kind of unpacking it from different perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. I started it in 2020 and it was really my effort as somebody in the sphere of public health to fight against disinformation and misinformation. So I used my podcast as a platform to spread accurate information and then also just educate anybody who who is interested in some of these diverse and multifaceted ways that that the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted our world, whether it's thinking about like healthcare infrastructure in Central America, or you know what it's like for somebody who um, uh, has a repressed immune system to navigate about their daily life in 2022 when people don't really wear masks like they used to, mm-hmm. you know, or the people that were left behind. So these very multidisciplinary conversations with experts as a way to disseminate information that maybe wouldn't make it, you know, to ABC or to the New York Times, but but that I think that people should know. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll be following both of your shows very closely. And before we go, and I really don't want to go because there's so much more I'd like to talk about, (laughs) but I have four quick lightning round questions I ask all my guests. Are you into it? Let's go. Yeah. Okay. So the first question is, how do you define success either personally or professionally? Hmm. I define success as as the path that makes me feel the most whole and the closest to like a, my greater sense of being. Hmm. I like that. That's an awesome one. Okay. <laughs> Number two, could you name or just describe a person who has inspired you in the course of your life? They could be living or dead. They could be famous or someone none of us have ever, ever heard of and never would. <laughs> One of my, I take a lot of inspiration from the musician Lizzo. Mm -hmm. She's this incredible flautist. I also play the flute, um, Mm. but she's, she's very much a feminist and is incredibly body positive and resilient. And I think has really changed the world in a lot of ways because she embodies what mass media and what our society does not like epitomizes the ideal body as the Mm. ideal face as the ideal form and she does not care she is truly living her best life and i think she sets a strong example for all of us oh i like that that's awesome okay the third question this is the penultimate question is there a book or a movie and it doesn't have to be an absolute favorite because that's so hard for a lot of us to say. So a book or a movie that's had an impact on either the way you think, the way you live, the way you approach your work, et cetera. Oh, wow. That's 
a great question. Um, hmm. um, one of my favorite books ever is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. She uh, she's indigenous. She's an ecologist, and she she's also a poet and an academician. So she embodies all of these what like seemingly juxtaposed things that you don't realize can be interwoven into one person. And she's written this beautiful book um, about indigenous ontology and incorporating that into kind of like our Western mindset, the ways that we relate to nature, the ways that we, you know, work with the planet. And, and I think it has had a really big impact um, on, on this generation because it's a relatively new book, mm-hmm. thinking about sustainability and kind of expanding our own frameworks for how do we change, how do we change the way that we're doing things and kind of like honor the become like co coexist with the planet and I think a healthier way. Ooh, nice. Breeding sweetgrass. Okay. That goes on the list. All right. Okay. Last question. If you were named queen of the world tomorrow, what's one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your subjects, bearing in mind that you're queen of the world, so you have ultimate power, and this would just be <laughs> your first act as queen? Oh, that's such a good question. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Oh, man. Um, you know, I feel like I should say something about food systems because I've you know, I've I was just gonna say, I mean, for an hour. Um, but you know what? Actually, though, I think you know one thing that I, I joke about with my friends a lot is like, it would be nice for all of humanity. And what you mentioned earlier, like the idea of raising consciousness and like, you know, existing in this world in a more sustainable way is like, I, I wish in elementary schools that they had emotional management and like interpersonal like relations you know like as a, as a course for kids like to teach mm-hmm. kids that you don't have to embody the emotion you can you know understand it and give it space and let it pass like not an anger management class but like emotional hygiene emotional mm-hmm. well-being um so i would mandate that as awesome. like an as a required course <laughs> Wow. And then on day two, you would give everyone food sovereignty and, and nutrient yes. security. And- Absolutely. You know, I think like day one, I think that that's, that's, that's part of it because, mm-hmm. you know, you have to do this like systems consciousness change to get the actual yeah. structural change. I think you would be an amazing queen. I have no doubt. <laughs> Well, Kat, thank you so much. This has been so much fun and so delightful and thought-provoking. And um, I think we're going to have to have you back sometime because there's a lot more to talk about. But this has been really, really great. And I'll be watching your two podcasts, Oh Crop and um, Navigating the Pandemic, for new episodes. So thank you so much and good luck with your you know, continued work and, at Columbia and also with the Rockefeller Foundation. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure and treat to come on the show. And I would love to come back anytime. Just let me know. 
Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this awesome episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember to check out Navigating the Pandemic and Oh Crop, the two podcasts. There'll be links to everything related to Kat and her work in the show notes. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And if you're in need of holistic career coaching to elevate your career, look no further than Nurse Keith Coaching. And remember, you can get a 10% discount off your first coaching package if you mention the show. We're produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And we are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and the inimitable Kat Morgan saying arrivederci from New York City. From New York City. Thank you, Kat. Thank you to everyone for listening and we will catch you on the proverbial flip side. 